IndyCar fans, it's time to start your engines. Welcome to Pit Pass Indy, a production of Evergreen Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Martin, a journalist who regularly covers the NTT IndyCar series. Our goal at Pit Pass Indy is to give racing fans an insider's view of the exciting world of the NTT IndyCar series in a fast-paced podcast featuring interviews with the biggest names in the sport. I bring nearly 40 years of experience covering IndyCar and NASCAR, working for such media brands as NBCSports.com, SI.com, ESPN Sports Ticker, Sports Illustrated, Auto Week, and Speed Sport. So let's drop the green flag on this episode of Pit Pass Indy. Welcome to this week's edition of Pit Pass Indy. This past weekend at WeatherTech Raceway at Laguna Seca in Monterey, California, racing legend Mario Andretti got a chance to experience driving a modern Formula One car. The 1978 Formula One world champion who drove the famed John Players Special to the world championship for Lotus Racing got a chance to drive the McLaren MP4-28 from 2013. The ride for the 82-year-old Andretti was arranged by McLaren CEO Zach Brown during a private event that featured a number of classic McLarens. Andretti will also drive that car this weekend before the United States Grand Prix Formula One race at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. Also, the final corner of that circuit will be renamed the Andretti in honor of the last driver from the United States to win the Formula One World Championship. Andretti's Formula One career began in 1968 and concluded in 1982. He won 12 races in 128 starts in F1, often competing in the full-time IndyCar schedule during those seasons. In addition to his Formula One World Championship, Andretti also won the 1969 Indianapolis 500 and the 1967 Daytona 500 NASCAR race, the only driver in history to win all three. Andretti was the second winningest driver in IndyCar history with 52 victories before he was passed by Scott Dixon after he won the Big Machine Music City Grand Prix in Nashville on August 7th of this year. Even at 82, Mario Andretti is not slowing down. Here is my exclusive interview with Andretti heading into this weekend's United States Grand Prix at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas for Pit Pass Indy. Joining us now on Pit Pass Indy is a real racing legend. It's Mario Andretti, the 1969 Indianapolis 500 winner, multiple-time IndyCar National Champion, 1972 Daytona 500 winner, and the 1978 Formula One World Champion. And Mario, this past weekend at Laguna Seca, you got a chance to experience your Formula One roots once again in a 2013 McLaren F1 car. What was that experience like to a man who's driven practically every type of race car that there is? Well, purely, I mean, uh, something that I was looking forward, as you can imagine, it's a uh, modern a car enough for me to, to get the, 
real uh, feel, a real drift of what uh, the present car feels like in so many ways. You know, thanks to McLaren, of course, Zach Brown, he made all that available to me. And and it uh, looks like I'm going to have a couple more sessions at uh, Coda this coming weekend. But uh, there's, there was, there's some issues with my uh, fitting in a cockpit properly. There was not enough leeway in the adjustments of pedals uh, vis-a-vis even steering position, you know, to, uh, to, to, to try to make me comfortable enough that I could really hustle the car. It's a very, uh, you know, it's a very uh, important piece that I didn't want to, you know, take a chance unless I felt that I had full command of it. Uh, so, uh, you know, hopefully we might be able to improve some of that for, for my journey at Coda. What year cars will you be driving at Coda before the United States Grand Prix? It'll be the same that I did at uh, Laguna, same car. So a lot of people may wonder after all that you've accomplished and at, uh, what is an 82-year-old Mario Andretti doing in a full-powered Formula One car? I guess age is irrelevant to you. Well, you know, uh, if I can itch, scratch my itch, you know, and somebody gives me the opportunity, uh, I definitely will. I just can't give up the idea of uh, trying to, uh, you know, to experience uh, driving a race car as long as I possibly can. And uh, and all of this is so important to me. It just uh, it gives me so much joy. And, uh, and that's it. I mean, that's what I'm looking for. I just love my driving so much. And I'll just uh, keep doing it. Somebody's crazy enough to give me a car to try or something. I will keep doing it. Now, in a professional driver such as you who've won so many championships and so many great races throughout the world, talks about not being able to hustle the Formula One car around as much as you would have liked. There's a term in racing about driving at 10 tenths. How many tenths would you say you were able to drive the McLaren the other day? Oh, it was to me, it was only about six, seven tenths uh, because, uh, again, I just, uh, it was really... Uh, the, the, the throttle was so far away from me. I had to kind of reach, and uh, and that's not a natural thing. That's kind of that's the most important part. And uh, and then the steering wheel was way too close to my chest. Um, so and, and we couldn't do anything about it. So uh, you know, to be able to really um, to really hustle a car like that is that the position has to be pretty perfect. Um, and I don't know how much we'll be able to achieve. Because it's uh, it's uh, the settings are pretty much where they are. Just, uh, uh, so, but you know, we'll see. Now, a lot of drivers talk about the current Formula One car. Really, you really feel the G forces, and you really feel feel it in your neck when you go into the turns. Did you experience those two feelings? Yeah, and, and I wanted to experience it even more in depth. The one thing that I could do for sure is to go to the limit, do the braking, really late braking, at, uh, which I was really doing. And like that, That's something that's so impressive uh, with a Formula One car because they're so light. And then uh, and they just really, really, well, I mean, it's almost uh, you pull in several Gs uh, because of that. And uh, I was really looking forward to it. I definitely experienced that part. So what did you do to prepare for the physical demands of this car, especially with your neck? I'm in good shape. I'm okay. Yeah, I could do. So you weren't sore or anything afterwards? No, no. 
my elbows were sore a little bit, just uh, banging around uh, the tub there, but uh, that's pretty natural. From a race driver's standpoint, when you drove the 1978 car to the Formula One World Championship, that was state-of-the-art at that time. Just how much different is, have the cars evolved since 1978 to 2013? Well, it's the same as uh, in any category. You know, the sport has evolved. Uh, to some degree, uh, the, the present cars, uh, because, uh, you, know, you know, the systems, the way they are, it's almost even a little easier. You don't have to worry about missing a gear on any of that stuff because uh, you, can, uh, you can shift while you're turning easily. Uh, where in, you know, <clears throat> with a car with a with a you know with an H with a gate, uh, sometimes while you're turning or shifting, you could easily miss a gear, so you had to really pay a lot of attention on that. So <clears throat> uh, with the paddles the way it is now, you never leave leave the steering wheel. You know, you always have both hands of the steering wheel. That's that's a big big thing when you're talking about a race car. You don't wear you don't use a clutch. You know, and any of that stuff. So things have progressed immensely. I mean, not only Formula One, IndyCar is the same thing, you know. So. Yeah, and that was the other question I was going to get to, is that when you were driving the uh, IndyCars throughout the year, every year there'd be a little tweak here and there, a different type of uh, evolutionary change and everything, and you were able to keep up with that. I was just saying that between the difference of, you drive the two-seater in IndyCar, which is a modified Delara, so it's able to take VIPs and passengers around the circuits for for rides uh, at high speed, especially when you're the driver. How do you even begin to describe the differences between today's Indy car and a nine year old Formula One car? Well, uh, to be honest with you, uh, there are no differences. I think the uh, uh, the 2013 Formula One car uh, it's got pretty much the same systems as. Uh, is what they're having today, as far as the basic systems and driving. Um, you know, you have the clutch of the steering wheel and all that sort of thing. So, uh, in that sense, the cars have not changed dramatically. Um, yeah, I mean, that's still considered a modern Formula One car, which is what I, I was hoping to get a chance to try. So, I think uh, that's what I'm doing. So in 1978, you drove the Lotus 79, the famous John Player car, to the Formula One World Championship, which is obviously one of your highest accomplishments, one of your greatest accomplishments, something you dreamed of when you were a little boy growing up in Italy. And to be able to accomplish that, and also prior to that, have an Indy 500 win and a Daytona 500 win, you have a special connection to Formula One that not many people in the United States can really boast of. What does Formula One mean to Mario Andretti? Oh, <clears throat> Formula One means a great deal to me because uh, that's when my dream and love for motor racing started when I was still in Italy. And uh, <clears throat> as, as long as I could reason, I think uh, it's just Formula One that uh, uh, gave me the passion and uh, started the love to pursue something like, you know, motor racing. Uh, uh, when I came back to the States, it gave me the opportunity to start pursuing my dreams. And, uh, and, and again, you know, that uh, I got to derive all the satisfaction in the world driving, you know, the Indy cars and so on and so forth. But uh, also that uh, gave me the opportunity to uh, 
to get a good taste of Formula One. And then, of course, uh, uh, winning the championship uh, with uh, Lotus, uh, Colin Chapman, you know, it was just, uh, you know, pure. Uh, I don't even know how to use what adjective to really describe that. Uh, <clears throat> it was um, satisfying my absolute ultimate dream. When you look at that John Player Lotus 79, even today, that's one beautiful looking race car. Yeah, no question. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, you hear this from, from you know, the knowledgeable fans, you know, which, uh, which again, they, they said everyone, you know, has the same uh, opinion, you know, how beautiful that car was. It's, uh, it, uh, it almost looks like, you know, contemporary modern car today. It's got, they had that style. But also, if you go back and look at the 1967 Ford that you drove to victory in the Daytona 500 that year, a lot of people will look at that and say that was stock car racing back then. That's when all the cars really looked like the cars that you bought off the showroom. Well, to some degree, yeah, they were, but it was still, you know, special built. Uh, you know, they had to keep a lot of, uh, you know, the, the original shape. They couldn't really reshape the body like they can, like, you know, they have done later. But, uh, you know, and they were, you know, we had a lot more horsepower that, uh, that, that what they're allowed today, you know, with the plate engines. Uh, we still have, you know, over 700 horsepower today. They're running you know, Daytona, Talladega with like 450, 480 horsepower. So um, the cars were much more of a handful, I can tell you that. Well, and it also seemed like back then it wasn't determined on the draft as much as it was handling. You would see a lot of different guys racing around the whole track, little groups rather than what you see today, which is one big long train of cars. So uh, that type of style, was it more challenging that way? Uh, the driver had more of a determination in the outcome of the race and maybe what you see today with, with the drafting scenarios, it almost looks like it's a lottery at times. Well, it is more of a lottery because, like you said, the cars uh, they for they don't they're afraid to just uh, go much over two hundred and you know in a two hundred miles an hour range because they're afraid you know if, if you get in one of those big usually big accidents they're afraid the cars will fly into the grandstand so they're trying to keep uh, the speed down to a reasonable level somewhere around the hundred ninety miles an hour range and because of that the cars. Uh, almost have a governor, you know, where they call the, they call it the plate. So they're, they all pretty much have the same horsepower where, you know, before that period, like, you know, when I drove, uh, the cars were as much horsepower as you could have. So they were much more of a handful because they were uh, probably quicker in the straight. It was slower in the corners, obviously, because they, we didn't have the downforce that the cars have today and they were not as perfected in the chassis. So, uh, but the drafting in those days was, uh, and not, you, you could never get, I mean, the cars could never really deal, uh, with, um, pack drafting like they do that today because, uh, aerodynamically, I mean, you could never survive it in a big bunch, you know, the cars would be all over the place. Uh, they were not that stable, but, uh, as far as two cars drafting was, uh, you know, it was actually, Easier than today. In those days, if you were crossing the finish line uh, first, uh, you and somebody was behind you, you had no chance of winning that race <laughs> because the guy drafting you, you know, would go by you 30 miles an hour faster. Because in those days, you could 
you could follow the car in front of you with half throttle. You know, the cars were just uh, not very aerodynamic, so you you were, you know, just opening up a big hole in the air if you're the, the, one, the guy in front. So it was totally different. Now, if the 67 uh, Ford had its own unique look and the John Player 79 Lotus in 1978 had its special look, where would you put the Braun or Hawk that you won the 1969 Indianapolis 500 in in terms of appearance? Because that wasn't even originally going to be the car you were going to drive in the race that year. Well, I wasn't going to drive there, but I won a lot of races uh, during the season besides Indianapolis uh, with that car. So that, that Braun or Hawk uh, has its place in history for sure. I mean, we won that. We had the championships sewn up. Uh, you know, and almost I think in August, and my last, our last race was uh, I think December second, which we won. You know, at the Riverside 300. So I won, uh, you know, short oval. I won super speedway. I won uh, road races with that with that car. So you know, that that's very close to my heart, believe me. And uh, the car being on display at um, at the Smithsonian. Uh, is, uh, you know, just uh, makes you very proud, of course. And and I know how valuable that car was for me. Trust me. So is that your favorite Indy car? Well, obviously, uh, it brought me the victory. And uh, and I'll tell you what, under the, uh, just uh, uh, very strenuous circumstances, because that was not the car that, uh, that uh, you know, we started the month with and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, and, you know, we were going to be using the Lotus, and then uh, we all know what happened there. You know, they had to be withdrawn because uh, they were not safe enough. But honestly, uh, things were breaking, and uh, in the last minute, we brought in the, the Bronner and uh, the Hawk, and, and um, you know, on only two days of practice, we put her in the middle of the front row. So uh, that's a valuable car for sure. We'll be right back to Pit Pass Indy after this short break. In the world of racing, Penske means performance and winning. For good reason. Since 1966, Team Penske has won 44 national championships, 17 in IndyCar alone. And last year, Team Penske claimed its Indianapolis 500 record-extending 19th Indy 500 win with Joseph Newgarden, the latest driver, to win the famed race. Team Penske also won its second straight NASCAR Cup Series championship. In 2022, Penske was the first team in history to win both the IndyCar and the NASCAR Cup Series championships in the same season. Team Penske enters the 2024 NTT IndyCar Series season with 236 IndyCar wins, including 34 500-mile race victories. Those are results that are tough to top. But Penske's legendary reputation for quality and attention to detail makes a statement off the track, too. When you need a truck... Whether for your business or for a household move, Penske Truck Rental has some of the cleanest, newest, and best-maintained vehicles on the road. And we make it easy with personalized support from our associates, flexible reservations, and access to the top technology. With quick pickup and drop-off at more than 2,500 locations across North America, our scale and know-how will keep you covered 
all helping to ensure you get the right, reliable, fuel-efficient vehicle when and where you need it. On the highways, the raceways, and every pit stop in between, Penske keeps you moving forward. Gain ground with Penske. Get a quote today at PenskeTruckRental.com or for household rentals, download the Penske Truck Rental mobile app today. Welcome back to this week's edition of Pit Pass Indy. And now back to my exclusive interview with Mario Andretti on Pit Pass Indy. Now, getting back to your Formula One experience this past weekend at Laguna Seca, how did it get set up between you and Zach Brown to be able to do that? And how many laps did you get to run? And if you could maybe take us for a lap, what it was like going into some of those great turns that they have on that race course, especially the corkscrew. Well, uh, but two years ago uh, at uh, Goodwood, I sat in a uh, current Formula One car that they had on display, uh, and McLaren did, and, um, you know, Zach is a good friend of mine. He also he even owns uh, one of the, the Lotus 79s that I drove, and, and I even drove that car up the hill, you know, on a... Uh, and it's good wood. And, uh, and then, uh, I was sitting in a present formula one car. I said, man, I said, uh, casually, I said, uh, I love to, you know, give something like a car like this a go. And, uh, he said, ah, I said, maybe we can make it happen. And, uh, so we kept, you know, chuckling about it. <laughs> and, uh, all of a sudden this, uh, this year at, uh, Miami, the grand prix, um, he's, uh, you know, they said, uh, Martin Brunel, you know, uh, wants to do an interview and, and there was Zach and then Zach made the announcement. He said, Oh, I said, Mario, I think we're going to have a car for you <laughs> and, uh, to, to, to drive. So you can imagine how I felt about that. You know, it was so awesome. And, uh, you know, for him to, uh, to go through all that effort and expenses, just uh, amazing. He's a good friend. I, uh, Oh, I'm a great deal for sure. So as far as taking a lap around Laguna Seca, what was the experiences like? Was there any particular turn that surprised you, or were they all just magical going through there in that type of car? Well, it, it, yeah, it was obviously, uh, I. that's the only thing that I'm slightly disappointed that I couldn't get, I couldn't fit in a car, which is very important when you're pulling those Gs uh, properly, and uh, I don't Definitely, I couldn't. Was not able to really squeeze everything that I wanted out of it. I told you I couldn't. Not really hustle the car, but uh, I know uh, how capable. I could feel how capable it would be. So I got the drift of what uh, the car can do, and and uh, I don't know if we can fix that situation as far as the cockpit uh, a little better for for Coda this weekend, and maybe I'll be able to um, you know to to get more aggressive with the car at Coda. What was it like going down the corkscrew in that? Uh, the corkscrew, you know, it's no big deal. Uh, I don't think it's uh, particular. I think there's, uh, you know, the, the turn four, like kink. some places where you just need to be flat. That's, that was pretty awesome. Now, speaking of Coda, it was announced on Monday that they're going to rename the final turn of that course the Andretti. And how honored are you to hear that? I can't believe it. I mean, it's uh, there's something that uh, uh, we were informed just uh, 
two days ago, I think that that was going to happen. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that, for sure. You know, to have our name connected with that iconic, uh, facility there that hosts, uh, Formula One in a very elegant way. And, uh, so, yeah, uh, and that's, that's, uh, probably the most important corner because if you don't negotiate that well, probably you can't uh, win the race. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, that's the last corner just before you get on, you accelerate to the start finish line. And when you look at the United States Grand Prix held at uh, Circuit of the Americas, it got off to a little bit of a controversial start when the place was first built. You know, they had a couple of really bad weather years where it really held the attendance down. But now it, they just draw massive crowds. Uh, last year they had a massive crowd there. It was I'm sure there were some people didn't even think they were going to get inside of the track before the start of the race. But all of a sudden, it's like it's become this great overnight sensation. What do you see the reason of, for that being, other than the fact that there is the Drive to Survive docu-series that was on Netflix that really helped boost the popularity of Formula One around the world. But it just seems like Formula One in the United States all of a sudden is the type of activity to be a part of. Well, indeed. I mean, you, you even you mentioned exactly, I mean, Part of uh, what really uh, I think uh, all of a sudden uh, exploded the interest. Uh, a lot of it was that Netflix series uh, Drive to Survive, and uh, uh, overall, I think it brought on uh, you know uh, creative fans that probably had no idea what it was all about, but uh, to learn about the intricacies of the sport and everything else seemed like it fascinated um, a lot of people and. Uh, yeah, no question that uh, the fan base is really, really, uh, I almost, could almost say awakened here in the United States. And you're going to have three Formula One races uh, in this country next year. And that's a first, you know, for any country uh, to host that in the world. So um, you could see that uh, something very special. And, uh, and I think that you're going to have the, the fans to support that clearly. Now, as much as you love Formula One, there's a driver that you're very high on and very impressed with that you believe should be in Formula One, but for whatever reason, with their super license system in the FIA, can't get into Formula One, and that's Colton Herta, who has accomplished an awful lot in a short period of time in a very young career in IndyCar, and also your son, Michael, has been trying to form a United States-based Formula One team doesn't seem to be getting much cooperation from FIA and from the Formula One principles there. So when you go to these Formula One contests and these Grand Prix, do you talk to some of the people who seem to be the obstacles to either one of them getting into the series? Well, the the effort is ongoing every day. I mean, it's not there all, okay, we're hoping that you know, in a couple of weeks, this, this is, uh, the conversation goes on and, uh, and we're, we're Michael and, and the group and myself, you know, we're on top of it throughout. I mean, it's, um, the idea is, uh, we're certainly not abandoning, you know, the idea. So there's a lot of, a lot of work that's going on, uh, behind the scenes. And, uh, and again, yeah, when we go to the races, obviously you can have face-to-face meetings, which are going to be happening. But, um, yeah, the uh, the objective is to get this thing going and hopefully 
you know, to be accepted, and it's going to be totally full speed ahead. But uh, a lot of things are happening already, as if you know we we are given the um, the opportunity to join. And also, one of your great allies, or one of Michael's great allies, and Colton's allies, and all this has been Zach Brown. Oh yeah, talk about Colton. Yeah, indeed. Uh, let let me express that as far as Colton is concerned. Uh, you know, he, he, he knows, he, he expressed himself. I mean, he says that uh, I don't want any special concessions, if you will, you know, to uh, to get me. I will learn, you know, he will learn his points. And uh, uh, out of this, we're just hoping that maybe the FIA will revise their system whereby they could include uh, uh, the Indy series, you know, to uh, to be able to earn points equal at least to uh, Formula 2. Um, and, and, you know, in, in Europe. So um, I think that would be fair enough uh, because uh, there are many young lads that, uh, you know, would like to have a shot at Formula One. And, you know, if they're successful in the IndyCar series, they, sh- they sure, I think, uh, deserve, deserve that, no question. Uh, so we'll, we'll uh, you know, we'll see what the future holds. But as far as uh, uh, Colton is, uh, they you know, he'll be in Formula One, and no question about it in, in the near future. Well, the question I was leading up to is a big ally for both uh, Colton and for Andretti. Michael Andretti has been Zach Brown at McLaren. How well do you describe how important his role has been in trying to help, you know, influence or maybe convince some of the other people that he competes with that this would be a good idea? Well, you know, Zach is a businessman and, uh, you know, is uh, extremely passionate about the sport and everything and uh, and a good friend. And, of course, uh, you know, he, he, I think he realizes uh, the importance of uh, how good it would be to just have another uh, American team, full-fledged American team in there and, and, and the opportunity to have an American driver as well since since you're going to have uh, three races here on top of everything else. So he's definitely uh, been encouraging and, and uh, agreeing that, uh, that we, uh, you know, we should give him the entry, that's all. And, uh, yeah, and it's not surprising. I mean, he, uh, Zach Brown uh, just knows and understands the importance of uh, the investment and everything else into the, say, call it the company of Formula One. He also understands the importance of his involvement in IndyCar with Aero McLaren SP, and in many ways, he's kind of shaken up the uh, garage area to some degree with a lot of his aggressive moves. It really seems that he's building a very strong team that is kind of changing the way the IndyCar series has been run, and how positive is that to maybe have a guy like Zach Brown push some of the other team owners into even greater competition? Well, you know, Zach is a man of great dimension, you know, understanding what is important uh, as far as how to showcase uh, the sport and how to contribute properly to make it better and better. Uh, so I think uh, his ideas should be uh, taken Seriously, no question. Uh, as I say, I think uh, uh, he just knows usually what he's talking about. He's involved in so many aspects of the sport. And uh, just watching him even this past week and uh, he himself driving all the ty- different types of cars that he, even, that he owns uh, at this event in, in 
Laguna Seca, this velocity event. And uh, so he's he's all in. You know, I'm, I have a lot of respect for him, but uh, uh, he just derives so much joy out of the sport, and he wants the the sport to uh, you know to excel in every area. And uh, if he has some ideas, you know, he's not afraid to express them. And uh, and there's a lot of value to what some of his suggestions are, believe me. And finally, wrapping up here with Mario Andretti, when you attend a Formula One race, especially at Coda or anywhere around the world, I'm sure that there's a lot of familiar faces that you still see in the paddock and the garage area. And what's it like to see some of these uh, drivers or people who have moved on, they now work with teams or their team principals? Because... You know, in the IndyCar paddock, you see guys you raced against like A.J. Foyt and people like that all the time. But it seems like what, whatever paddock Mario Andretti shows up in, you're going to know a lot of people and a lot of people are going to know you. Yeah, this has been the case. I mean, uh, I've lived this, you know, my entire career. And I have friends and, uh, you know, and not just friends, you know, acquaintances. Uh, some of, uh, you know, the in- individuals that uh, I've worked with are still around still active so uh yeah to me it's like another home i mean motor racing no matter what discipline i go to like whether i go to a nascar race or whatever i always find i have friends that have been there and and uh, we understand each other uh you know that part uh is there i uh that's I have more than one home. Well, he certainly does. And here's a man who does more at the age of 82 than most of us have probably done our entire lives. But <laughs> Mario Andretti, congratulations on getting a chance to drive the McLaren MP428 from 2013 at Laguna Seca over the weekend. And also congratulations on having the final turn at Coda renamed the Andretti Corner. Yeah. And thank you for joining us today on Pit Pass Indy. Anytime. Thank you, Bruce. And that puts a checkered flag on this edition of Pit Pass Indy. We want to thank our guest, the legendary Mario Andretti, for joining us on today's podcast. Along with loyal listeners like you, our guest helped make Pit Pass Indy your path to victory lane for all things IndyCar. For more IndyCar coverage, follow me at Twitter at Bruce Martin, one word, uppercase B, uppercase M, underscore 500. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thanks to our production team. Executive producers are Bridget Coyne and Gerardo Orlando. Recordings and edits were done by me, Bruce Martin, and final mixing was done by Dave Douglas. Learn more at evergreenpodcast.com. Until next time, be sure to keep it out of the wall.